William Carey and the preaching of the gospel in India recorded the following experience. Quote, and this uh, you might, if you uh, brought a pen to church, you might write the name Andrew Fuller in the margin because Carey became famous. Andrew Fuller, except that if you know missions history, you won't know his name. So Andrew Fuller wrote this in his diary that uh, eventually was published in several of the um, several of the Carey biographies. Andrew Fuller wrote this. Our undertaking in India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine, that mine which had never been explored. We had no one to guide us, and while we were thus deliberating, William Carey, as it were, said, well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. Now that's the famous quote. What isn't famous is the two sentences that follow. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that, quote, while we live, we should never let go of the rope. That quote has not made it into missions history. And that quote takes me to my message this morning. Will you as a congregation hold the rope? Will you be rope holders? Will your men's meetings be rope holders? Will the women's fellowship times be rope holders? Will when you worship together, will you realize together that one of the reasons why you're worshiping God is that you will honor him and hold the rope for those who are serving locally and globally. So I have to ask the question with you, hopefully you'll travel with me, why do missionaries need rope holders? Aren't missionaries sort of like special people? Like they, you don't even really have to pray for them, they're so spiritual. Are missionaries so anointed that you could never be one because you don't have the anointedness. Some of you are thinking, I don't want to be one, but you can have any of my children anytime you want them. <laughs> but don't take my grandkids. They're here to stay. But you can have, in fact, you can take the kids by the bunch if you want them. I could never do that. And so... What I, what I want to do is just unpack some of the verses from the book of Philippians that as I look at a rope-holding church in the New Testament, I see the book of Philippians and Paul's beloved relationship with the believers at Philippi as his, his standard of excellence. Now, uh, I haven't heard uh, your cool pastor preach very much. But I have heard other pastors say the book of Philippians is about joy, and that's a half-truth. The book of Philippians is about joy because Paul is joyous in his relationship with a rope-holding church. The book of Philippians, exegetically speaking, is a missionary report to a, a sending church, to a partnering church. And the reason why there is so much joy in the book and the words for joy and happiness and, and the emotional phrases that are throughout this book are because Paul constantly is encouraged, he's refreshed, he's supported, and every time he thinks about the Philippian believers, it puts one of those Cheshire cat grins on his face. But there are five reasons that I, and there are many in the book, but I'm going to focus on five that help us to understand why missionaries need rope holders. First of all, I'll read um, Philippians 1.7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, Paul says to the believers in Philippi, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all 
partakers of grace with me. This word partakers is a familiar word. It's just not, it's an unusual way that Paul uses this. This is actually the root word koinonia, where we get the idea of fellowship. And it's got the preposition in front of it, soon, which means you are, you, you could almost make a new word, you are the koinoniaite with me in the gospel, and though I am imprisoned in chains, I am encouraged because we are going through this together, which is sort of strange because Paul is the one in prison, not them, but he is encouraged, he is refreshed when he thinks about the believers during his story of imprisonment. So my first point is that the reason why we need a rope holder is that hostile ministry contexts are real. They are real. The Damascus Road eventually led the Apostle Paul to a Roman jail. Apostleship led to, my new word, prisonership. Apostleship to prisonership. The call of God led Paul to a loss of control in his life. This led him to explain to the Philippian church that even in prison, God was there. A loss of control is an experience that none of us will pursue. We'll pray for those who have it, but we will not enjoy it if it is our experience. Hostile contexts come in many shapes, many sizes. Some of us experience hostile contexts with family, with friends, when they find out we're a Christ follower, possibly at work. There may even be persecution because of the claims of Christ. But hostility, as I said, it it comes in many shapes, many sizes, many forms. The result is you're controlled, and sometimes you feel embarrassed, sometimes abused as a result of it. Last last summer... um, I received a call from my headquarters to say I would be flying from San Francisco to Denver to do training, and the person organizing the the travel schedule from the airport uh, to our headquarters just discovered that one of the missionaries that I would be training was actually going to be on the airplane with me. And that's very unusual, because I never fly from San Francisco. I was up there doing some family ministry stuff, and it turns out we're on the same plane, so I I typed the... uh, secretary at our office and said, well, send her a picture of what I look like. Uh, You know, not the airbrushed one, but the real one. Uh, Because I don't want to be walking through the airport uh, going, hi, my name's Dennis, are we supposed to meet? You know, it's going to be a a little awkward, right? So uh, I introduced myself to her. You know, she's a single midlife career change person. She's getting ready to go overseas. And uh, I'm thinking, this is God's stuff we're going to have an opportunity to talk about God's stuff on the airplane. Not exactly. I got on the airplane, we sat next to each other, and I fell asleep. It was a great sleep. Two hours, just a marvelous sleep on the airplane. So, but I'm still wondering, why has God placed me here? This is unusual. I don't fly with, with students. I don't fly, you know, it's just, I go there, they go from their places, and I'm, I got it in the back of my mind. What's God doing? So we get off the airplane, and, okay, I have to remind all of you, I have four children. Two of them are daughters, seven granddaughters, okay? The granddaughters are from seven to 11. So when you get off the airplane, you want to ask the grandfather questions. Well, you know, how do you put this? So I said to her, do you need to before we go get our bags? She goes, no. I said, Okay, great. I said, do you need anything? She goes, I have a headache. I said, well, what do you do with a headache? She said, I usually look for French fries. And, and I was thinking, salt and carbohydrates are going to, for me, that would give me a headache, all right? And she said, no, this will be fine. I said, great. So she takes her French fries, and we start down the escalator. We get right to the bottom of the escalator, And she screams, like this big life and death scream. So she's got the French fries in one hand, 
And I look, and the escalator is sucking her dress into the machinery. And I'm going to use a technical term for the, for the ladies here that the men were not, are not going to get. It's the term maxi dress, okay? You can explain a maxi dress uh, to your husband later. Basically, it's one piece. And the machine is desiring all of it. Okay? All right. So she has her French fries in one hand. Now, I don't know what to do, nor do I know the ladies. I mean, we barely talked, okay? All I did was go to sleep on the airplane. Barely know her first name. So the first thing I do is I will pull this dress out of the escalator. Forget that, guys. Don't even try that. You may pump iron during the day, but that escalator works out 24-7. <laughs> All right. But the only way you're going to find out that you cannot pull a dress out of an elevator, out of an escalator, the only way you're going to find out is by trying. So she's pinned up against there. The escalator wants all of it, and I'm down here pulling, pulling. After about three pulls, I realize I'm no match. So I know this is an airport I'm in all the time, the Denver. So I reach around. I know where everything is there. So I shut the thing off. Now the real problem starts. When you're coming down an escalator, and you're not the only one there. And all these people now want to get off the escalator. And guess what? We are in their way. Let me say that again. We are in their way. The, the first guy comes up to me and he goes, Can't you see I have a bag? Do I look stupid? <laughs> the guy that really got me, and I, I mean, I've been thinking about why this guy got under my skin. He walked by me with a cell phone, and when he looked over at me and saw her with her french fries, he starts saying things about me on the cell phone to whoever he's talking about. And can you believe he called me a name? As my granddaughters would say, Poppy, that is not right. Mm -mm -mm. Okay, so I went after him. <laughs> She's not going anywhere. And I looked at him, and I started yelling at him, and I said uh, uh, in my pastoral counseling voice, <laughs> Hey! <laughs> if... You're going to judge without data and then walk away. And I forget how I phrased it, but it was loud. And then I went like this, <laughs> which is to say in manly language, do you want some? <laughs> and then my mind went, yes, Dennis Ahern, World Ventures pastoral counselor, will be late today to the training venue. He is not out of jail yet. Uh, Something happened at the airport, and we're not sure about it, but he is coming. So we're standing up against this escalator, her maxi dress pinned down into the gears, and for the next hour, we're together. After about a half an hour, she says to me, you know that question you asked me right after we got off the airplane? I said, yes. She said, that's an important question now. And I said, because I, you know, I want to be respectful, right? I said, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, where are we? She goes, well, I don't know anything about 1 to 10 scales, but we have about 20 minutes. And my, and my first thought was not on my watch. One thing to be where we are, but we're not going to add that to this story. And I said, in 10 minutes, I'm going to start caring. And I don't know where it's going to stop, but you will not be here for 20 minutes, I promise you. Denver Airport sent me an EMT. <laughs> I need a maintenance guy. They sent us a maintenance guy. He brought nothing, no tools. 
But there he was, happy to see us. We were delighted to see him. So after about an hour, we finally got her disconnected from the escalator, and she whispered to me, um, now I know what you do. <laughs> yes, now you know what I do. God puts us in places where we come alongside someone in travail. His design, his authority, his control is, is about him and his glory stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with us. But I've asked myself the question, does it bother me when I hear people criticize and judge others when they haven't done their homework? Holding the rope is about supporting missionaries who are in that situation. Missionaries serve in a hostile world, and it doesn't matter if you were caught in a Roman jail or pinned to the side of an escalator, rope holders are essential. The prayers of a church family accompanied by the words of encouragement can produce the courage needed to overcome an environment that is beyond us. Hold the rope, Grace Point. Your missionaries serve in some tough places. Number two, unresolved relational conflicts are what? Let's continue to read in Philippians. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The later do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Unresolved relational con conflicts are, quite simply put, a distraction, a distraction from the gospel. Unfortunately, in the Apostle Paul's day, some Christian leaders used, if you can believe this, it's bewildering, they used the preaching of the gospel for personal enrichment. The word selfish ambition in the Greek contains the idea that these preachers were actually religious mercenaries for hire. They could be bought. They could be bought. Simply put, their love for sheep increased with the price of wool. How embarrassing. Truly embarrassing. And these gospel hucksters sought to trouble Paul during his imprisonment. The problem is, it didn't work. They failed in their efforts to bring discouragement because Paul says, what then? That in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I speak regretfully and with lament that there exists in our day Christian leaders who use their positions of power and personal ambition to advance themselves and not the name of Christ. It's embarrassing for me as a shepherd to stand here and confess the sins of my own people. One of my pastor friends, I, I have several people that I coach and mentor, and every once in a while the Lord brings me some pastors, and I go, I don't have time for you guys. And they go, who says, Buster? And one of my pastor friends informed me this. He said this, when our church purchases airline tickets for short-term teams, the senior pastors in our midst have seniority, and they take turns buying the airplane tickets with their own credit cards. And what do they get out of that? Air miles. And he said to me, quote, Dennis, please tell me that if one day I become a senior pastor like this, that you will help me exit the ministry. Because if this is the road I'm on, and if I'm going to become this man, get me out now. Um, a memory from Macau days. One of our, the larger churches in Macau told Paul and us uh, one day, Paul and I, Paul Mayhew and I, that our evangelistic meetings were disturbing their worship services. Now think about that. Our evangelistic meetings were disturbing their worship services. We were making too much racket. 
Now, I'm not sure at the time I was walking in the Spirit when I heard that, but having had several years to reflect on that, I come to Luke chapter 15, verse 7, which says the following, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons enjoying the solitude of a worship service. No, uh, the, the righteous persons who need no repentance. I think that means when sinners come to Christ, there's a racket up in heaven. Oh, thank you, Jesus. One more, one more sinner saved. Amen. Yeah, that's how they sing up in heaven. That's not what Luke 15, 7 says. And in the chinese sort of way, what they were saying really, let's get down into the woof of things, is that this is our corner. These are our not-yet-saved sheep. Get out of here. You're, you're distracting us here. And we would have said, fine, great. Come out and preach the gospel with us. You want some of these uh, not-yet-saved folks or some of these new Heck, how many do you want? Take them. No, that's not what it was about. It was about criticism. It was about turf. It was about politics. It was about economics. It's embarrassing to talk about this stuff. But it's in the book. I worked for weeks with a short-term worker who returned to the U.S. and her senior pastor and missions pastor asked me to meet with her. Actually, her missions pastor. She served in an orphanage in eastern uh, Southeast Asia. And with regards to missions after her short-term trip, she returned to the U.S. delusion, uh, disillusioned, uh, demoralized, and broken. And her mission pastor wanted her to meet with me. As the story unfolded of her work in Southeast Asia at an orphanage, she informed me that during uh, her service, the leader of the orphanage, the high point of this leader's life, was when the gold seller came to town. The high point of the director of the orphanage's life was when the gold seller came to town on a weekly basis and she added to her collection of gold and silver. And this short-termer who'd never been overseas said that I said to the director, quoting herself to the director, how can you spend so much money on gold and silver when these children that you're caring for have so little? The director, she quoted the director's reply, and she quoted the director's reply with such angst and sorrow on her face. I know she got the words right. The director said this, if you only knew how much I love these children, you wouldn't ask me such a question. Is that an answer? Or is that a dodge? That's a dodge. As we began to unpack her story, I looked at her and I said, have you ever heard the term spiritual abuse? She said, no, what's that? I said, that's what we're looking at here. She said, really? I thought it was missions. But this is stuff here. This is spiritual abuse. I want to get a little personal. I, don't, I ask... Um, Dear Brother Brad, how long I was supposed to preach? And he said, I don't know if we've told you that. So, okay. Immediately after I said yes to this position as World, World Ventures Pastoral counsel, Counselor, two things happened simultaneously. The first thing was my phone started ringing, my email started, uh, box started filling up. I started getting calls from, miss from missionaries, their husbands, their wives, their children, single, all of a sudden, it was like, now we've got somebody to talk to. That was the first thing. The second event was that two influential Christian leaders began making my life miserable. People would ask me, how's the ministry going? I said, the ministry's going great, but politics and economics is kicking me hard. And they both exerted influence, some of it intentional, some of it unintentional, with the result being that it made it very difficult for me to raise financial support. Their combined ego strengths wore me down. 
and there were times where it just practically wore me out. I had a group of pastors who gathered and met with me, and they were like a covering, like your elder board as you prayed for the Mayhews. It's like, you can't do this alone. You need to be in community. The adversary is too strong. You can't do this alone. The bumper sticker that said, the army of one, it's a lie. An army of one is a casualty of one. And their combined ego strengths were overwhelming. The pastors, I remember one time, one of the pastors said to me, do you want us to just go see the guy? Let's go see him. And I go, no, 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 that, that, that's, that's not going to honor. <laughs> that's, that's, let, let's just pray our way through this. I found myself in the middle of a power struggle. And I needed strength. And these brothers, they stood with me and they fought with me and they prayed with me. And they could see the impact that this discouragement was having on me. But the battle wasn't turned by them. The battle was turned by my wife. It's just the two of us at a, at a dining room table. And she said, do you feel like quitting? I said, these two guys are making my life miserable. They're doing what they can, either on purpose or not on purpose. They are relentless. Yes, I feel like quitting. She said, uh, my wife, by the way, is mostly German. Germans have a love affair with straight lines and 90-degree angles. It's, I, don't, I don't know. I've seen some of the farm furrows out here, and it's like, there's another German right there. You know, you can, right. God did not give a straight line and a 90-degree angle just to throw it out there. It's not a suggestion, okay? So here's what she said. I have a question to ask you. Let us say you receive a call from a missionary kid in trouble. You've taken these calls. I said, okay. She said, let us say this child is hurting. Okay. Right. So here's my question. Are you going to allow these two men to get in the way of you taking that phone call? I want to know the answer to this question. Now, when she said that, I still had to translate into a feeling kind of language because I'm more the feeling. She's more the straight line talker. She needed to know the answer to this question, which was what kind of a husband did she marry? I don't remember the rest of the conversation because there was no more to the conversation. It was very clear. I was not going to allow two guys with big hats to get in the way of me helping that one more child. It's not going to happen. Hold the rope, Grace Point. Your missionaries serve where unresolved conflicts are distraction from preaching the gospel, and there will be times when they need you and only you will do. Thirdly, personnel needs are overwhelming. Paul says in Philippians 2, 19 through 21, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul, uh, Paul Mayhew and I, I, like, I decided to put a bunch of Paul Mayhew stories in there because you probably haven't heard a lot of these stories. Okay, Paul Mayhew and I, and we, we started Chinese churches because Chinese needed the gospel and you can only go so far without a church. You can do Bible study, you can do worship services, but you need a church. You need organization. You need order. You need to begin training. And you can't do this with anything less than the church. And Paul and I were mildly exhorted by a Chinese pastor who visited us from another country that we should not be pastoring a Chinese church because, quote, we were not Chinese. Really? Paul and I looked at each other. Hey. We're not Chinese. <laughs> That's true. Not new information, but it's true. 
And I sat down with him and I said, I agree that our congregation of baby Christians is most worthy of being pastored by a Chinese pastor. The problem is we don't have one. And I asked him point blank, would you be willing to move to Macau as a missionary and pastor this congregation? At that point, we only had one. I don't really remember that conversation going any further. He wanted to criticize us for being shorthanded. Well, that's helpful. Not really. But he wasn't really to put, ready to put skin in the game and come out. He wasn't willing to say, well, my church will start sending you folks to help you pastor. No, just be critical that you're shorthanded. Well, that's not all that helpful. After I agreed to this journey in member care and providing member care to missionaries, I can't even begin to tell you how much spiritual warfare became a part of my life. Warfare in ministry, warfare at home with children needs, and I don't have time to go into that this morning. But for those of you who are history buffs, World War II, Pacific Theater, I want to use a metaphor that's going to help you understand spiritual warfare. Do you know who Japanese snipers were trained to shoot during World War II? Medics. Now think about that. Medics. In fact, the Japanese had a formula for this. One bullet into one medic equaled the death of anywhere between four and ten Marines. One bullet in a medic killed four to ten Marines, somewhere in there, depending on what history book you read. Now, you see, the powers of evil are not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They don't have any of the omnis in their arsenal. They can only shoot carefully with great conserve, uh, conserving their ordinance. And when somebody is gone who does member care, there's a whole lot of missionaries that are not going to be cared for. There's a whole lot of good work that can't go forward. And a missionary or a missionary family is a terrible, terrible resource to lose. I challenged the leaders in the church yesterday to send short-term teams with a medic on the team. You wouldn't send eight soldiers overseas without a medic on the team. Send a medic. Send somebody trained in member care. Send somebody on the Stevens ministry team. Hold the rope, Grace Point. Your missionaries serve where personnel needs, personnel needs are overwhelming, which means sometimes delegation is moving things from your right hand to your left hand and then back to your right hand again. Especially if you're talking about men and women committed to the mission committed to the mission. Number four, losses must be what? Let's look at the text. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain. Losses must be well grieved, well grieved. We must learn to grieve well. God led the Apostle Paul to understand that every impediment to gaining and sustaining his relationship with Jesus Christ had to be let go, had to be released. Paul's home in Tarsus, released. Previous stature in life, released. Previous accomplishments, released. Health. Released. Home life, released. Scholastic reputation, released. Ministry fit. Here's an interesting one. God sends a Hebrew scholar to serve the Gentiles. Ministry fit, released. A sense of this fits. No, it didn't fit. He belonged in the synagogue. No, that's not where God wanted him. Ministry fit, released. In summary, Status, influence, stability, release, release, release. 
If his wife had taken a pickup truck with his dog Bo in the back, she could probably turn it into a country western song. Except he was releasing it because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I need to speak to you for just a moment on the subject of loss. Let me speak regarding missionary bereavement. Do you realize, maybe you've never thought of this, do you realize that when your missionaries return from an overseas assignment, so let's say they've been gone three or four years and then come back to worship with you, and if this were their home church, do you realize that all of the deaths that you've had during the last four years happened for them on their first Sunday back at church? And then someone is very likely to greet them at the door and say, does it feel good to be home? I remember Ken. Ken was one of the old codgers in our church. Now I'm kind of an old codger, but in those days I was not. And the only prayer meeting for men in our church of 1,500 was five or six guys that were all retirement age, and they invited the new missionary to the prayer meeting, and they prayed Dennis and Denise and Paul and Diana to China. And after the prayer meeting, they fought over who is going to take me to breakfast. I couldn't afford a 3 or $4 a week expense to go to breakfast. And Ken was an interesting man. Ken was um, a farm boy from Iowa, and at 13 or 14, he had to go out in the fields and help his father. He had no way to, to pay for a, uh, a music education. He was a very gifted singer. He had a marvelous tenor voice. And I asked Ken if he would sing at my ordination. Because he didn't have a degree, but he had a heart, and he sang with God. And while we were in China, Ken went to be with the Lord. I didn't know. Didn't get a note from the church. It's like, well, he's gone. And just multiply that through the congregation of how that impacts your missionaries in their own journey of grief. But I need to help you to understand grief. It's not just about bereavement. Most people don't understand grief because they think grief is about death. Grief is about loss. And death is one loss. Grief is about learning how to mourn and lament and move forward in poise and faith. I think it's time for a Paul Mayhew story. Um, you've all heard the story of uh, all of us who've learned other languages that there comes a point of tremendous discouragement when in ministry or in that practice you find children fluent at a level way beyond you. Five and six-year-olds are rattling off and you're like, I don't, I mean, there's an adult inside of me, but I can't even sound like a five-year-old. I mean, I have a college degree, I have a seminary degree, and nothing comes out that looks like or sounds like I'm an intelligent human being. Paul came back from a trip out in the hinterlands of his practice of the language, and he said, I had a really bad day today practicing my language and I said what happened he said I was on my bike and going down a lane and an old Chinese man stepped out in the lane and the dog stepped out in the lane with him and the Chinese man talked to the dog and the dog understood him <laughs> and then Paul, Paul paused for a minute and said and I did not that's a bad day. Imagine me in Hong Kong preaching to at a at a at a wedding. You know, weddings wherever you are are pretty serious, right? Okay, you know, the shoes are tight. Let's get this thing squared away. And and I look at the groom, and I I'm I'm in Ephesians five. The word wife for Ephesians five, by the way, is mentioned five times, and I'll explain why that's important in a minute. And I looked at him and I said, God has called you to give your one love, your sacred love, your highest love, your holy love, and give it to your car. 
See, in, in Mandarin, the, former, the formal word for wife in Ephesians 5 is chidza. It's a formal word. It's only in the Bible. It's like a Bible word. It's like a King James Bible word. It's not the normal word. So you kind of have to get over it to make sense out of it. But the word for car is chudza. Chidza, chudza. That sounds pretty close, right? Some of you are sitting out right now. You're going, is he talking about my pickup truck right now? And there's some of the wives are going, he actually thinks highly of his truck. So the reason why I know there's five times in Ephesians, in the Ephesians 5 passage, because once I said it once and people started laughing, and my wife was as loud as anyone that was laughing, it began to be kind of a chorus. And I'd start to get worked up right to the next time, and I kept saying the same thing. I did it five times in a row. After the sermon, after the wedding, the ink is drying on the... The husband came up to me and he said, can do. (laughs) Before I conclude on the topic of grief, which can be an embarrassment, it can be frustration, I want to remind you that, that loss and bereavement are together, and, and while your missionaries may not be grieving the loss of a loved one, missionaries are grieving. And they're often grieving things, but they don't know what to call it. Let me tell you a secret why I know this is true. It's true because you're grieving things, and you don't know what to call it either. Tell me what you would be feeling if you're worshiping with us today, and you're not married, and you would like to be. That's grief. Tell me if you're worshiping with us today and you are being disrespected at work and you need this job. But you don't know what to do. That's grief. Tell me if you're working on an academic program and it's hard and it's not as easy as it could be. You're grieving. What if you're married and you want to conceive a child and you can't? Grief. Grief. And, uh, and grief is an unfair warrior. It's a, battle, it's a battle that you will not win. Grief will morph into different shapes and sizes, and it will take you down. And if you don't identify it, oh, it's not anger. It's not, br- it's not bitterness. It's not resentment. I, it's, not, it's not, well, I've never been unforgiving before. It's grief mas- masquerading as a different adversary. These types of grief often start with a sentence that begins this way. By this time, I thought I would be. And then you can fill in the blank. By this time, missionaries would say, by this time, I thought I'd be fully funded. By this time, I thought my parents would have come to have visited us overseas and that the tension that exists between us would be resolved because their grandchildren are in another country. By this time... By this time, I thought I would love working in this country. By this time, I thought I would be speaking the language fluently, that I wouldn't make so many mistakes. By this time, I thought I would uh, not hurt so much to put my children on airplanes and say goodbye. By this time, by now, by this time. Hold the rope, Grace Point. Your missionaries are learning to grieve well. To quote Jim Elliott, they are learning that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to receive what he cannot lose. That releasing is a work, and it is a work of God in us, and we need rope holders to help us walk through that. Lastly, I have a comment about financial needs, and let me read the passage. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. 
hold the rope. Financial needs are often only understood by a few. Only understood by a few. The Philippians church was especially tuned in to Paul's financial needs. And this bond had a life-changing, life-impacting influence on his life. Even as new believers, they understood that they had a responsibility, a loyalty to the one who had led them to Christ. To receive a deeper understanding of the generosity of the Philippian believers, take some time to read what Paul said about the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. See, they gave not out of their wealth, but they gave out of their poverty. Denise and I have been in missions for 36 years. I shared, uh, we shared a bit of our testimony on Friday night. And it would take me 36 years to explain why I am still in ministry today because of the love and the care and the support of people just like you. This is a friendly church. I'd like to come here, but the commute would be very expensive. During orientation, my freshman year, and, and I shared, those of you who were here on Friday, I did not come from a Christian home. And my family did not understand that they now had a conservative Baptist missionary in their midst. I mean, what do you do with this? You know, not even, it would be even wonderful if he, if he, if he was uh, one of those pastors that believed the Bible was sometimes God's word, sometimes if you thought it was, you know, that would make it a lot more palatable for my family than somebody committed to inerrancy. My first week during seminary orientation, I made one friend. I was smart enough to know that I could not go through seminary alone without a friend because I knew the biblical languages were going to be hard, and I made one friend. And during that freshman year, that freshman orientation week, we spent, oh, man, we, we met every day. We talked. We debriefed. We met for prayer. We did, oh, my goodness, it was great. And at the end of that week, we sat on the lawn outside Western Seminary, and I said, I want us to share what God has taught us. So I'm just so excited to be able to look down for the next three or four years how long it's going to take. And he said, uh, well, I want to go first. I want to tell you what I've learned. said, I've learned I'm not supposed to be here. This is way too hard. The academics are going to kill me. But I've learned something else. And I said, what's that? He said, I've learned you're supposed to be here. Well, thanks a lot. (laughs) And he said, but I've learned one other thing. And I said, what's that? And he reached into his pocket and he handed me his car keys. And he said, you can't go to seminary without a car. My car is now your car. And if you, if you hear my voice, that was in 1975. You do the math. Why am I passionate about remember care? Why am I passionate about the church being the church to hold the rope for missionaries? It's because I've got 36 years 36 years where I have been the supported and loved and encouraged and battle-weary, arm-around, loved missionary by people around the world. A Paul Mayhew story is in order. After our first home assignment, I was in the South and Paul was in your beloved Northwest, and we sat in our office after our first home assignment. And I said, Paul, give me a highlight of your home assignment. And he said, and I don't remember the couple's name. I'll call them Charlie and Sally. He said, this was a retired couple, and we sat in their living room after church, and they were obviously on a fixed income. And after we were hosted for lunch in their home, it was just the four of us, Sally said to Paul and Diana, um, We've decided we want to give you $100 a month to support your ministry. And Paul was thinking, I don't know how they can afford us at $100 a month. This is fixed income stuff. 
And Sally said, but you really need to take a look at Charlie. And <laughs> I said, he doesn't look so good, right? And our heart is that we will give you $100 a month for the next four years. Charlie may not live four <laughs> Charlie may not live four years. So we think the best thing for us to do is to write you a check for $5,000. That's in the event that Charlie goes to be with the Lord before we can finish our commitment. So we're just going to round it up from $4,800 to $5,000. Would that be okay? Paul looked at me and said, you want to ask, you ask me about home assignment with the churches that love us. That's the first story that comes to mind. Hold the rope, Grace Point. Your missionaries' financial needs will only be understood by a few, and maybe I should say by a very few. It's time for me to invite you back to the Denver airport with my missionary friend because she said something else to me as we left each other at the hotel. Yes, she said, now I know what you do, and she smiled and laughed, but she said another sentence to me that's still in there. She looked at me and she said, Dennis, I'm so glad that you were here with me today on the escalator and that I didn't have to go through this alone. I'd like to see your hands for just a minute. Baptist pastors get really excited. Okay. All right? That's very good. The next time I have the honor to be with you, will you show me a rope burn? Will you show me, will you show me a blister? Maybe even, as my granddaughters would say, a boo-boo or an owie. A callus, if you will. Our Savior calls us to hold the rope. All I can say is to get a good grip. Because if God has called you to get a grip, get a grip. Thank you.